Hi, welcome to the third episode of Tom's podcast. Thank you for uh, returning, or if this is your first time listening, thank you for choosing to listen. I appreciate it. Also, thank <laughs> you, Lauren, for producing this episode. Yeah, thank you, Lauren. We've, we've, we're slowly but surely figuring out how this to make this podcast as tolerable as possible. <laughs> yeah, maturing our taste buds. Yeah, it's it's, it's difficult because part of me is like I just want like I don't want to think about all the peripheral stuff, but for it to be enjoyable and for it to go where I'd like it to go, you have to do these things. Yeah, you know these are all experiments. I can't just go entry level successful podcast. No. No. So I appreciate you coming back and I appreciate you listening a lot. Uh, I'm going to start with a clip of something I've been working on. I made this today. Um, I quite like it. I hope you like it too. been up to recently well again um, (laughs) not that much we are still in lockdown and we are still shielding coming out the other end though supposedly Uh, suppose yeah i mean i had the most the first dose of the vaccine i'd say well it's about a month just over a month ago which is very good and it's the oxford vaccine which i've heard good things about uh and so, yeah, I have some level of protection, but I think we were saying in the first episode, I still I have to have two doses and I need a serology test to find out exactly how 
how much immunity I have because I'm on immunosuppressant. So right. the best thing for me to do at the moment is to take the advice of the NHS, which is to shield until the end of the month. What does shielding mean? Shielding is if you, if you are in a category called clinically extremely vulnerable, um, you're asked to shield, which means you the advice is to not leave your house. Yeah. At all. Yeah, I think it said you're allowed to open um, a non-street-facing window. And that's yeah. like the most amount of outside you're allowed. Yeah. Um, that's the advice. And to the most part, I'm doing that, except we, we walk our dog, Raph, in the morning. So yeah, apart from that walk, that's it. We have, we have actually been grocery shopping a little bit. Yeah. Because... You know, the advice is the advice, but we, you know, I try to follow the, the case numbers and the data, not as closely as I was because I'll go mad if I do that, but I follow it and there's less threat than there was, say, two, three months ago. So we are grocery shopping now and again because you, you, you have to stay sane as well. You can't stay inside. Our only form of release is buying food products yeah so that's about it really i mean inside i i'm doing little bits and pieces like i'm, I'm working on music i'm working on uh, my acting i'm taking my class at the moment which means i'm doing I'm working on a scene and a monologue um i'm finding it very hard to actually memorize the dialogue this time it's difficult doing it on zoom to be honest doing mm. the acting on zoom is just not the same you know, and it, and it's it's one of those things where it's like I, I find it I'm just finding it very hard to motivate myself to do anything at the moment, and I think most people know what that's like. The beginning of the pandemic it was this weird thing where it was like, oh shit, like I'm inside for two. You know, originally it was like two weeks, mm. so it's like I'm gonna use these two weeks to to create something amazing, and I'm gonna get swole. Yeah, I'm going to be extremely productive, and and I quickly realised that that wasn't going to be the case because there's actually quite a lot of stress, and it's not actually the the ideal environment to be working in. And I gave myself a break, and and I actually found that once I start to accept that I don't need to do anything, there's obviously I have obligations. You know, the band were able to work when we could. Um, but for me personally, I accepted that I can pretty much do what I want at home. Then I actually started to make work because I actually wanted to. And that's been quite a nice thing. Like in the morning, usually I will come up here and just start working on stuff. So I'm trying to think about I've actually done anything since we last did this. I don't think like I'm doing a lot of stuff on Zoom. So I had a, I had a doctor's appointment on Zoom today and my fucking camera keeps cutting in and out every time i use zoom it, my camera is just cutting in and out and it's really really annoying me and i don't want to do about it eh. i don't want to buy a new camera just use mine i could i should yeah i need to keep i need to remember to to not use my pc i think it's some i don't know it's usb or something it's something boring yeah i think gamecube is a new is a new one yeah i bought a modified modified gamecube on ebay um, so it's been, it's been hacked so that you can use a 
um, an SD an SD card, so you can load SD cards, SD, sorry, games onto the SD card, and then somebody's installed like an SD card reader in the GameCube. Um, but it's 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 fun, but you need I needed like two other things, so I needed a memory card, an actual GameCube memory card to save the games, but also a micro SD card to save the settings of the firmware. So I've not actually used it yet, and also I can't get any sound out of it. And it's this kind—it's this thing. It, the GameCube has become obsolete, which is kind of annoying because there are a lot of cool games on there, mm. and uh, you know you, there's this like HDMI. It converts it to HDMI, which is cool, but it's also like you're blowing up an image which wasn't meant to be blown up, and it's just not that good. Mm. So I've actually been playing. I've been using a Switch because I'm trying to. Um, I'm trying to like. If I'm gonna play games, I'm just trying to play games which are just, you know, just not stressful. Because <laughs> a lot of games are really, really stressful, and it's like, what, what is the point? A lot of PC games, like Rust, for example, which nearly broke me. Um, I, I, I don't remember that. Yeah, I got I got really addicted to it. Um, it's like an op- uh, well, it's like a huge map. And oh, on your PC. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of start with nothing, literally. You start with nothing. You wash up on a beach, and there's like 150 other people playing, but they have cycles. So the the cycle typically lasts about a week, mm. and you have a week to do to get to the highest kind of like um, social kind of ranking that you can. But if you don't get in on the first day of the wipe, there's people that have already built bases, and like to build a base is complicated. Is compl- you can build it with wood, but then you got to upgrade it to like sheet metal and stuff. And it's really, it's really difficult. And I got really addicted to it because it's quite methodical and you, there's certain things you need to do. And I, and I was getting good at it. And then I had, I got into a fight with some teenager somewhere. I, I heard this fight. Yeah. From a different floor of our house. <laughs> yeah. And it was late at night and this kid was berating me and I was fighting back with him. And I just, I was just like, I've had this epiphany a few times, but this was kind of the final straw. And, and I realized, I was like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, I enjoy gaming for certain reasons. Like, it does give me a lot. I've always, it always has. Mm. And I don't think I'll, I will ever give it up. I don't need to. But I needed to regulate what I was playing when I was playing it. And I have an addictive personality. So if there's something that I will, I can get addicted to, I will. And unfortunately i got addicted to rust and i was like it gets to with these kind of games gets to the point where i'm like this is all i want to do and it completely gets in the way nothing else is as good as good as that it's like any addiction like just whether it's my phone or whatever it is like that's what i want to do and nothing else is as good so i was doing everything to get it out of the way so that i could play rust and the thing about rust is you have to play it you have to play it as much as you possibly can to have any to stand any chance because there's there's always people that are playing it more than you are mm. and also the thing with rust is if you get killed and you you say if you've worked for four days at getting like top tier loot you go out you risk going out to try and achieve something you get a bullet in the head you die this person takes all of your shit and you start from scratch so when you finally decide that you've had enough of the game yeah which happens you go through these cycles is it relief for you like do you a little bit yeah are you like oh no thank god 
it's a little bit of relief but it's also a little bit of like this weird kind of grief where it's like it's it's hard to like i don't know what i don't know what the real situation is like but i do feel like i need something to be addicted to whatever mm. it is i i always have this hole that needs filling so when it comes to video games i'm constantly like searching for that perfect kind of game which is going to be like in, literally like intoxicating mm. and that's what rust did for about a month and when i came to this point and i was like i can't do this that's like i'm wasting my life yeah i'm wasting my life that's what it felt like i had this epiphany where i was like i am not achieving anything good right now like and i have that quite a lot with particularly pc gaming because with pc gaming i have like a very very high spec pc and very high spec monitor all this stuff so you're getting the highest you're getting the optimal experience of what these games have to offer mm. and it's really is intoxicating and the serotonin dopamine whatever it is that is releasing from my brain is incredibly addictive for a period there's this like honeymoon period where i'm like so addicted to it and i'm loving it and i'm all it's all i think about and i'm like i'll get the iphone like companion app and i'll, I'll join the read the subreddit and i'm like reading everything there is to, to know about it and, mm. and then i reach a point where i'm like this doesn't add anything to my real to the real world it doesn't help me with anything like you might you might be able to argue that it helps with like hand-eye coordination or problem solving but only in that right environment yeah. it's like crosswords like you you could be the number one cross new york times crossword player in the world but it actually doesn't translate to anything else other than crosswords right. it's like, a myth that it helps you with like cognition generally yeah or like being the best like basketball player in prison or something and that gets you a certain amount of cred but then leaving that environment being good at basketball is just that yeah it's not like yeah the trade or anything yeah yeah i i have yeah i have these realizations where i'm like how can i apply this i can't i can't apply this to anything mm. and when you get into an argument with, with a stranger and this person is shouting this guy this kid was screaming at me like through through this through his microphone i wasn't screaming back i was getting really angry with him i just was like you know what you can have all my stuff and i logged out and i deleted the game it wasn't actually a relief to begin with because i was angry and i was embarrassed mostly i was mostly i was embarrassed and so since then i haven't haven't actually like there was a month or so where i didn't use my pc I, I used it for zoom meetings and things but i didn't play any games on my pc mm. well then what happens is i'm using my phone more i'm using reddit more i'm using twitter and instagram more and whatever it's just, just, I'm, there's always something that i need which you know it, it, this that is a whole thing i don't know i don't know how much you know maybe i'm in denial denial about a lot of stuff you know addiction i don't know what i think about it i don't know if it's something that you can that you can come out of or if you like or if you have to accept and live with it um i don't know or maybe one day you'll put that energy and addiction mentality into something that does serve you and does bring you a lot of joy and 
whatever. I mean, maybe you can't because that's like inherently the bad problem with addiction is that it's unhealthy yeah. relationships to stuff. Well, but that's what I've thought. I've tried to think that maybe it's a good thing that I can be hyper, hyper focused on something mm. and I almost like rinse it of its of its joy like because that's what happens with any anything that i get addicted to i, I bleed it dry and then it, it doesn't become a jo enjoyable it becomes a problem it but and that can be things that are good like video games like mm -hmm. i will get addicted to a video game and i will bleed it dry and i'm but i can't stop playing it and i'm playing it and it's and it's hot it's, it gives me a hollow feeling it's like translucent like black and white there's no like there's no magic to it anymore, but I can't stop doing it. And then it becomes this weird thing where I'm like, but I, en but I enjoy this. Mm. Why am I not enjoying it? Like, I, I want to do this. I'm good at it. I put all this time into it. And that's what, that's, that's what addiction is, is that, is that repetitive behavior and it's detrimental to, to you. You know, some, some things are detrimental to your physical health. A lot of things are uh, detrimental to your mental health, but you can't stop doing it. And there's, there's a list as long as my arm of things that I've got addicted to and I've bled it dry and it makes me miserable because I can't stop doing it. Mm. And it's stuff that to a lot of people is trivial and and it doesn't really like, how could you possibly be, be addicted to or Why don't you just stop doing it? It's not the same. Like it's not that straightforward. I can't just stop because it's, I, I, I have this weird thing where I'm like, I owe, I owe it to myself to keep doing this. Or I owe it to the thing to keep doing it. This weird relationship where mm, I'm like, this so thing needs time. me as much as I need it. Mm. This in, this thing that exists in a computer or whatever it is. Right. I guess that's maybe the problem with video games particularly is that you have a character and it exists and it does need you to yeah. survive. Yeah in, a lot, yeah, in a lot of ways. Yeah. And they, these games are designed to be addictive. Like they're designed to keep you trapped. You know, I was playing a game earlier, I was playing Overwatch, which is an extremely fun, like multiplayer, multiplayer kind of game. You, you have an objective and the games aren't too long. There's a hundred different characters to play with. So you can kind of, you can kind of play whatever mood you're in. And the games, are, like I said, games are quick and they're fun. And it's very simulating visually and audio, audibly. But you start to kind of, you, you know, you get this ranks. So you get to level 20 and then you, once you get enough experience points, you get to level 21. Then once you reach level 21, you get a loot box. And loot boxes are inherently addictive. It's like slot machines. Because you, don't, you, you click open and this, this animation unfolds and it's, you get three things and it's like, and here's what, here's what you've got, here's what you've won. And it's like, holy shit, I got a legendary skin for this mm. person. Or I got a... I got a legendary camo for this weapon and it's just endless mm. and they you know it's i found i fantasize i've told you this before and it's probably immensely boring to you but i've i've fantasized about removing er, all, all of that from the house I've, rem I've fantasized about removing every single screen from the house I know. but i would go through such withdrawal you're kind of bingy and purgy like yeah binge it and then you want to purge it but you also can't live without it but the fantasy of purging it is really attractive it is oh yeah with everything like we said last episode with like clothing or yeah the purging becomes part of the addiction as well because 
say if I'm I'm aware that I'm addicted to social media, I'm googling how to overcome addiction to social media. I'm addicted to that. Right. Yeah. As finding out as much as you can about this yeah. topic. Yeah. It's getting to the point now where the, where the gap between me deleting my social media and reinstalling it again is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Um, mm. In the cycle where I get sick of it, I open Twitter and I'm, in, I'm immediately angry by what I'm seeing. So I delete it. I delete the app. And then some, sometimes a few hours later, I'm like, oh, but what if somebody said something to me like about the podcast or like somebody is, you know, because I, I know people on Twitter now that, that, I've met in person and people who are, you know, come from being fans of their band who I've become friends with. And our only communication is through social media. And to me, that's a real relationship. And I, and I, I get angry and I delete my account. I delete the app or whatever. And then I start to think, but what if this person is contacting me and they think I'm ignoring them? And then I think, fuck that. That's what the, so that's what, this platform wants like they want you trapped and then I think it's not a real relationship mm. if I've only met this person once mm. but then I think but then I'm like well everybody else seems to be able to manage it why can't I manage it and then it goes back to this thing of like am I an addict and then it's like what what do I fucking do about that because the only you know the opinion of for a lot of people is you need to be completely sober and then it's like well I don't want to do that it reminds me of that the social dilemma documentary movie yeah. or whatever and and they were talking about that study done with pigeons where you know the pigeon hits a button and it every time it hits a button it gets a treat or whatever but every time it hits a button and there's no treat or sometimes there is a treat but it's when it's random yeah, that's yeah, when it yeah. becomes addictive yeah the 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 negative aspects of social media are, are as if not more addictive than the positives so right if you post you post a photo the whole reason that it's addictive is because you're waiting for those likes. You're waiting for those comments, you know, so you post a selfie, you take time to take that selfie because you have a persona that you're trying to maintain. Like this selfie is not who you are. You spent time mm. angling the, the phone, you like making sure, a lot of people will use yeah. all kinds of shit to make themselves look almost unidentifiable. Finding your light, yeah. Yeah, and then you're waiting for those likes. You open the app. The dopamine, I can feel the dopamine. Like, I mm. swear to God, I can feel it. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, there's, you know, also with me, I deleted my, I deleted my main account that was like verified on Instagram, that was verified about uh, last July, thinking I'd just suspended it. Mm. Can't get it back, so I had to start a new account. And so I don't have any followers now. Um, so I opened my app and I'm like, four likes. And I'm like, oh no, but like, also, I don't post selfies, so it's, it's uh, what was the last photo I posted? I can't remember. It was a picture of a, a road sign that had a nice kind of rainbow effect on it. Um, sure. Yeah, <laughs> and I opened my phone, and the reason I'm compulsively opening my phone is because I want to see I want to see people responding positive to positive to positively to it, yeah. so I get that dopamine hit. And it can be random. Sometimes you'll get five, or sometimes you'll get none. Yeah, and that that is what exactly. keeps you checking it. And the problem, the the whole with the whole negative thing, like Twitter, for example, I get into horrible kind of fights with people. Like somebody might share some stupid opinion, and yeah. I I'm like, whatever. And then I'm scared to open the app because I'm scared to see how they're going to school me on something, or they're how they're going to wipe the floor with me. 
Um, so I don't know what to fucking do about it. I, I, like, I, 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 it's hard, it's hard talking about addiction. Like it, it, it's very, very hard because it, it, I don't take drugs. You know, I don't, I'm having a glass of wine right now. Like I have maybe two glasses of wine a week. Yeah. But I'm a hundred percent addicted to a lot of things. But I think that's the same idea of that binge and purge yeah and who knows like if it wasn't these things it, it could very well be drugs and alcohol yes um i don't know i i i, I you know i wonder if there are people who are listening who can relate because it's very very complex i think that on the surface a lot of people see addiction as being you're addicted to this drug and that drug or you're an alcoholic so you drink too much mm. when it's actually incredibly complex it's and maybe not it's talked a disease, about enough. That it's like a literal disease. And yeah, that is that, really hard and, to and it's invisible. Yeah, which is really hard to accept because the nature of addiction, as well, is it wants you to be addicted. So addiction wants you. It, it, it's it, it, you know it wants you there, and so it's convincing you that it's not an addiction. Mm. It's convincing you that it's just a phase or that. You know, for me, it convinces me that it's a good thing that I get so hyper-focused on something and I bleed it dry because it, show, it shows passion and dedication. Mm. And a lot of things, like playing drums, for example. As a kid, I was addicted to playing drums. I was addicted to the idea of drums. I was addicted to drummers. Like, I would read magazines endlessly about drummers. I would, I, there, how I learned to play was by copying drummers. Mm. I'd spend hours listening to albums and copying how they played and that's how I learned how to play now and that is invaluable and it's given me my career and my life but it was an addiction mm. and so it's this weird it's this weird thing where I, I really wouldn't want to change how how passionate I can be about the things that I love but I don't it has gotten to the point where I don't know what I actually love and what I'm addicted to yeah because they're, they're being manipulated yeah they're just interchangeable i just yeah. don't know you know and i yeah i fantasize about getting rid of everything and but the, the, that, that thought is also a terrifying yeah. i can't leave my phone for more than half an hour without without compulsive without picking it up because i need i need to pick it up i start to get anxious i know i hate it it's i know yeah i'm aware of, <laughs> i'm aware that you hate it as well it's really it's bad in it and it it's confusing and I don't, really, I don't really know what to do about it because you know also people who know me wouldn't necessarily know that so if I was to do anything about it it's scary because it's like well oh well yeah I didn't know like so it's happened to me in the past where it's been I don't, I don't know you're not uh, like you get stigmatized or something yeah yeah you're not like that you just whatever mm. It's quite personal, so it's, it's difficult to know how much to go into it, but it also helps to talk about it, otherwise you're completely on your own with it, and you can't make heads or tails of it. I mean, we've talked about this a lot, but also that like I'm on the other end of that spectrum of, of being hyper in control of my... I'm just not addictive. I don't have addictive personality. No. And it's it's interesting to hear because I don't relate to it <laughs> right i like can imagine what you're feeling i get it you know but i don't 
think right. I experienced the same yeah. things. It's hard to describe, but it feels like it feels like a it feels like I live two in two worlds in there's like two parallel universes that I live in. And I have to be in both at the same time. So this world, this universe that I'm in right now, the the real world where where you have to function and you have to to brush your teeth, you have to take your pills, you have to eat face. well, you have to wash your face, you have to <laughs> get enough sleep, you have to pay your invoices, you have to read your emails. There's also this other world, which I need, I, I want to fill myself up with, like, I want to fill myself with, with it, whether it's food or whether it's video games or whether it's mm. pornography is one. Yeah. It's not, it's not that much but it exists and also what you class as pornography is another conversation (laughs) which we've had (laughs) right so whatever it is like i'm in this i'm in this i'm being torn between these two universes and the universe of addiction wherever whatever you want to call it it's like a black hole it's constantly sucking me towards it yeah i don't know what the answer is i don't know how i can exist in the real world knowing that that universe exists you know, I've talked to you, I think I've talked to you before about how I've, I see myself, like, I see myself, like, when I think about the future, I think about, I'm, I'm going to be a hermit, like, I'm going to be, like, on my own, long hair, a beard, it's absolutely fucking grotesque person, just completely consuming, consuming this void. Mm. That's what it feels like. Do you want to um, share some music? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Here's another clip of something that I have been working on recently. transition to alt j topics Mm. and some people might already know this but maybe a lot of you don't and uh, i guess talking about how you and 
Gus and Joe and Gwil met and started the band. Yeah, so we were at university in Leeds. I was studying uh, a fine art degree, and so I met Joe and I met Gwil through that degree. I met Gus in the second year um, at Joe's house. Um, I think Joe was in halls with Gwil. Uh, sorry, Joe was in halls with Gus. I might have got that wrong, but I think that's right. Um, so they were friends. But yeah, if we go back to the first year, yeah, I started university in 2007 with Joe and Gwil. I, I became friends with Joe quite very quickly. Yeah. We were actually the first two people in the first seminar that we were were to have mm. joe was the first person there and i think i was the second um and <laughs> i i kind of went into the it was in our studio our studios where the seminar was being held and i got i went there and joe was like, arranging the chairs <laughs> and, and and when you like when you're studying fine art, you're kind of you're you're expecting the unexpected all the time, and you're being trained to think differently. Mm. And also, Leeds University fine art degree is very hard to get into. You have a lot of people that apply, and there's a handful of people that get in. And I felt extremely lucky to get in, so I was very nervous, mm. and I was very kind of also extremely excited because I was so ready to like immerse myself into like fine art world and like mm. be around other people that were felt the same way and I was really nervous so I got there and I saw Joe like arranging these chairs and I was like oh wow he must be like making some kind of art <laughs> <laughs> which I wouldn't put past him which I think he was doing <laughs> yeah um and I don't remember exactly I think you know like when you I'd never met him before in my life so I just kind of probably was very awkward and was like, hey, what you doing, you know, and Tom, whatever. And and I remember quite 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 vividly, like we were like looking out the window and like we were talking about stuff. And I, I ended up talking about David Shrigley and like how we both liked David Shrigley. Mm. And then other people, other people started coming in, you know. And um, I remember Joe being very friendly. Like he's always been extremely friendly, and I, just, I, I do remember him being very warm and kind of welcoming mm. and at the time I was I was quite ill so I was on dialysis at the time living on campus or... I wasn't no no I didn't live in halls I lived with my dad um, in Harrogate which is a uh, it's not a small town it's just a town near Leeds in North Yorkshire that's where I grew up because I was having to go into hospital a lot I, I couldn't live in halls mm. so you know and, and I think I ended up telling Joe that or whatever that you know people who i started to make friends with knew that i was not well and that i was having treatment for something and um i remember yeah joe's very reassuring about it and he didn't judge me for it yeah so we got quite close and we became friends i looked up to him a lot i really admired him a lot i thought he was very very cool i thought he was very very smart mm. you know he's very very bright and extremely talented i think he's probably the most talented person in our year and that might be controversial to people who are in our year but i think he definitely was um he had this very unique skill of being able to 
see things in almost like a childlike way, like in, in making art in a way that it felt good to him and not pretending, mm. you know. I was, I was, I fell into a bit of a trap of being too conceptual and trying to be too intellectual and academic because I had a complex about my own intellect. I felt I needed to really try and impress people by being overly conceptual. Mm, overcompensating. Um, yeah. Whereas Joe was just very, very naturally talented. He's the most naturally talented person I know. Like, he still is. He doesn't need to try. I mean, he obviously will probably disagree with me because he tries very hard. But to me, it seems like everything that he does is just good mm. by default. Um, and so when I didn't see him that much because, like I said, I was at home and I was in, or I was in hospital a lot. So I didn't, I didn't actually attend a lot of the first year. And also, yes. I met Guo in the first year. Right, so you didn't like go out and like party and get a beer after class. Or... No, I remember doing that a couple of times in the first year, mm. and I was very awkward and I was extremely shy as well. That first year, I was I was very shy my whole life up until that point. I was very quiet. Um, I felt very inferior as well. To, you know, it, to be in that year and amongst those people, there were a lot of very talented people. I felt like a bit of an, a bit of a you know I do imposter syndrome a little bit so I didn't uh open up that much but and I didn't get to know Gwil that much either to be honest it was only till it was only the second year when so I had a kidney transplant in the summer of 2008 um at the time I was living with my mum I went to live with my mum um I can't remember when it was I think it was toward the end of the the academic year of 2000 and well my first year so 2008 sort of april may time i, I had I had a basically a mental breakdown at university mm. and realized that i couldn't be at home with my dad so i had to go live with my mum in cornwall yeah but, you know and i was having dialysis and things and then i had a transplant in 2008 which meant that i didn't need to have dialysis anymore so i didn't need to go into the hospital that often which meant I could move. I moved to Leeds and I moved in with some classmates. It was last minute, so it was a bit random who I lived with. Did you take time off of school while you were getting your transplant? No, I think I was able to start the academic, my second year, I was able to start mm. on time. I took time out of the, toward the end of the first year and the professors were very kind and they kind of passed me. Because technically, I don't think I passed. Mm. So they passed me through. Um, and yeah, I was able to join in the second year. So I moved into Leeds. And I was able to experience student life properly. And that's when I knew that Joe and Will were playing instruments together. And Gus as well. Actually, I learned later on that Gus had... Gus, well, I hadn't met Gus yet, actually. So I met Gus at the house party that Joe... And Gwil were having, Joe and Gwil lived together. I met Gus. It's actually a photo of, I think it's Joe, Gus, and I. Like the moment I met Gus. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Just like, hey, and then a photo. Was yeah, like, I don't yeah. know who took the photo, but I, 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 know, I, I know that photo. And I remember meeting Gus and I was very intimidated. Yeah. Um, because Gus is very smart and very confident. Well, he, he, kind of, he came across as being very confident. And I was very intimidated. And I was trying to explain to him what kind of art I made and what conceptual art is. And I just, 
you know, I, I think I completely bollocks it up. Um, but he was very, very nice and we got on really well. And then I remember Joe, like, we were, we were at a, like an, a student bar for lunch. I was eating a bowl of chips and I think Joe was like, oh, well, we've started this like band, like we're just like making music. And they knew that I was a drummer because at the time I was in a band at home <clears throat> with my friends from home. Mm. I'd been in since I was 12. A metal band? Yeah, it was like metal, like grunge with my, with my friends Tom Skinner, uh, Simon Dawn. And I was doing that. So they knew that I was a drummer. And they asked me if I wanted Joe and Gwell. And I can't remember if Gus was with them at the time or not. I think he probably was, but... I'm not sure if Gus was there when Joe asked me. Joe asked me if I wanted to come to a practice. Um, I was like, yeah, definitely. I didn't have any drums in Leeds, so I went home and got a snare drum. Um, I think that's all I brought. And some like brush of sticks and a sh an egg shaker. And the first time that I m I, we met as a band was in Joe's bedroom in Leeds. And they'd, they'd written I think three or four tracks together and they played me these tracks and I distinctly remember thinking this I've never heard anything like this and this is the, this is what I've been kind of looking for did it sound like Alt-J sounds to you now or was it a different kind of it does yeah I mean it does in a way in that Joe's voice is very distinct and memorable right. and and it's a huge part of our sound yeah um but it was very folky and very very stripped back you know obviously because there were there was three instruments there was an acoustic guitar i think will was using a bass guitar and gus playing a uh, keyboard mm. and they played three or four tracks to me and yeah i was just like you know I, I i think i felt like i didn't really deserve to be there and i was very lucky to be there and i didn't really know what to do as a drummer, I was like, I don't, I didn't say this, but I, I remember feeling like this is not what I'm used to. Mm. And then I, I don't remember really what happened next apart from we just kept meeting up and I had a very, I had a snare drum and then I eventually got a kick drum and very quickly we had tracks. Um, it was very, very stripped back. I remember we had tracks like Matilda and Something Good. Mm. Um, there was a track called Portrait, which has not been on any of our albums, uh, track called Leon Hiroshima, Gilf. <laughs> um, or what? What does that stand? What is Gilf? Yeah, I think it's Grandma. I'd like to fuck. <laughs> right. Okay, I thought so. <laughs> I might be wrong, but I think that's what it was. And we had a friend, Ollie Mason, who um, who played with us on, on Gilf, and I think he read something. I can't remember what happened. Uh, yeah, and so we were just playing together and we quite quickly realized that we had something And so we were like, why don't we like play it to people? So we played we played us like a uh, our first very first show was in Joe's living room Joe and Gwill's living room Where they lived in a student house and they had the best student house in Leeds. That's the most popular house mm. So we played and it was packed and we invited all our friends and it was packed. The living room, living room was packed. I think people were kind of blown away. Mm. 
because we were like, oh, like here's here's just some like music we wrote, and it's mm. like whatever, like see, you know, see yeah, if you like, like it. Yeah, we've all been to that party where it's like some shit band is just yeah. there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and we played, and I think a lot of people were genuinely very, very surprised. Mm. I was surprised, like you know, if you know, I, I, I'm still surprised. Um, and we were like, that went really well. We should do it again. And so we we kind of then well Gus actually Gus was like at the forefront of getting us gigs and like he was he was very very good at the the administration like they're actually contacting people and keeping tabs yeah. on things like that organized yeah I didn't I did, I wasn't um, even in that my mind was not in that space um, I just went along with it really and we ended up playing like at the pub around the corner and then eventually this uh, promoter uh, a promoter called Richard in Leeds picked picked us up and offered to put on shows for us and helped us out. And you had no like CD or like recorded. Oh, we did make a yeah, we made a CD, a demo tape. Um, How did you make that? I can't remember. I think it might have been on GarageBand. I think Guel might have recorded it on GarageBand, mm. GarageBand. <laughs> um, I can't remember. We made an EP. We made a CD. There's a few out there. And also at this time, like we got uh, some recording time in London. Um, Gus's brother like hooked us up with like a day in a studio, and we went and recorded. And actually, it was like it was an interesting experience because we were blown away by being in London to begin with. I was anyway. It was my first time in London, mm. and then we were also kind of a bit like, "Wow, this is actually quite clinical." You know, the producer we worked with was very, very good. But, but the style we just weren't used to. It was like, we need to get this down. We need to get this take mm. down. We need to get this guitar down. We need to get this vote. And it was just not what we were used to. And I remember feeling a bit like it's taken something away from it a little bit, which was an interesting experience. And then we put stuff on MySpace and it was picking up traction on MySpace. And a friend of, um, friend of Gus's, uh, Nick, hooked us up with our producer Charlie Andrew mm. who's produced all of our music and we went and met Charlie and then it's when it that's when it clicked that we could actually record and it still be like authentic right and we don't have to compromise anything yet Charlie Charlie emphasized our qualities and brought out the best of us and that's what it's been like since then yeah like to literally this day yeah I mean <laughs> 2000 11 uh we were in cambridge we moved to cambridge so that because we were, we were getting interest in things we, we didn't want to move to london but we, we wanted to be, be near london we moved to cambridge so that we could like come down and record when we when we could and we were on the dole and then we won the fucking mercury prize in 2012 a few months after the first album came out and then we won ivan novella for best album a few months after that and it was just it just kicked off and we started touring in America and Europe and do you remember like hearing your music being played or like in the radio like on radio or in a bar or something yeah the first the first are you pouring you... a glass of wine <laughs> 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 or just taking a piss <laughs> just yeah yeah I remember the, the first the first time we got played on radio it was like local radio in, in Yorkshire Le Leeds I think and then yeah, I remember Steve Lamarck being very, very 
important to our career. Like he was, he advocated for us a lot and played us a lot. And I was blown away by that. And then to be honest, actually there was so much that was happening. How I felt I, it was hard to keep track. So it was actually a bit of a blur. Like once the album came out, because we'd also been promoting it a lot by then. And I knew from the very, the very first show that we did that I just told you about in um, Joe's bedroom, I knew that we were, we were special. You know, it was only when people started, people's response was like, okay, not only are we are special, we are going to make it. I did not expect to win the Mercury Prize. Like, mm. to get the nomination was phenomenal. We were announced last for the nomination. There's 12 nominees. 11 nominees were, gonna, were announced. And we were like, oh, well, maybe the hype wasn't real, but that's okay. And then we were nominated and we won, you know. They announced, they announced it. Alt, the winner of the 2012 Mercury Prize is Alt-J. I remember everybody else from the table got up and then I was in shock and my manager was like, you need to go up. And I looked up and Joe, Gus and Will were on stage. <laughs> <laughs> and I got up there and, and then it was, just a, it was just a blur and we had an after party and it was like, we, we fucking won the Mercury Prize. Uh, and then it's, then it's been a blur up until about two weeks ago. <laughs> Do you have a memory of like hearing it casually or like being out and being really proud or like feeling like kind of like showing off? Yeah, I do. I remember being in Australia and um, I mean, by the time you get to Australia to play, you're kind of, you know, you're already like made it. But um, I remember being in Australia and we were, we were at a cafe on a beach or by a beach, I think. I, don't, I can't remember which city it was in and they were playing the album in the cafe yeah it's a and good cafe album it is <laughs> yeah, yeah and I just remember thinking this is normal to them they just they put this on because it's normal and I, yeah and I, yeah I remember being quite blown away by that but to be honest I, I, I by that point anytime we did an interview I was blown away you know, anytime anybody wanted to speak to us, there was a period when we were in Leeds, when we were unsigned, there was record labels, um, heads of labels driving up from London to meet us. Like the head of the, the head of Island Records was driving up to meet us mm. because there was, a, there, was a, there was a race to meet us. Same with managers. This is after the Mercury Prize? This is before. Right. This is, we're, we're still students. Yeah, there was we, we were on Music Week, which is like a industry, an industry kind of magazine website, and I think because we were we were we were unsigned and we were, you know, we were potential. You know, for a lot of labels, it's business, mm. it's an investment. You know, we were in a we were a, like it's like the stock market. You know, yeah, we up were an up and coming band. Yeah, we were an up and coming band, and we were unsigned. So they were like, well, let's go up and fucking sign them. And, and the tragedy is a lot of these, a lot, this happens to a lot of young bands. They get signed, they get shelved, and then they get dropped because record labels have enough money to sign bands and be like, oh, maybe we can make it work, maybe. Mm. And they don't decide to make it work or things move so quickly in the music industry, like genres, the time passes and they're shelved and nothing happens. I've heard of it being the case, I think you've told me about this, of bands being signed because they compete with other bands on that yeah. label and then they won't release the music so it doesn't compete Yeah, if there's a band that are extremely hot, a record label will sign them just to take them away from the market so yeah. there's no competition. 
And then the sad thing is, is that a lot of these people are very young because record labels want young bands. They're not going to sign a 50 year old band. Mm. Some, some labels do, there are, there are labels which specialize in that kind of thing, but the big labels, they want the young, attractive bands, you know, mm. um, it, it's terrible. And luckily my bandmates, my manager had the foresight to see all of this and were very, very sensible and waited. And we, we ended up signing with Infectious, who did an amazing job. And we were very lucky that we did the right thing. And we were, we were extremely lucky that the people that we work with have honored our, you know, our vision and our art, because that's the most important thing. Without, without, without us being able to be honest about our art and like keep it pure, there's no point. Mm. We thought, I think we've mentioned this before, but like the symbol of the triangle was like really popular in that time too, yeah. like Urban Outfitters. It was. We were very lucky that, that the Delta symbol became a logo without us even really having, there are marketing companies that spend yeah. a fortune on marketing when we had our own marketing in the triangle Yeah. that just was almost a mistake. I mean, that was Gwil's idea, the, the, um, the name. Mm. Um, and we tried to use the name as the symbol for a while, but obviously you can't say a <laughs> symbol. Yeah. yeah. So it actually was a really, really good thing for us. 2012, 13 was like geometric. Kind yeah. Of, now it's like so, outda so <laughs> yeah. outdated. Like we don't use the, you know, the triangle really anymore because it's just, it's old. Maybe it's time to bring it back. Maybe that's... I don't know. I don't, I don't <laughs> think so. I, may, I know what you mean. Maybe there will be a time where it becomes ironic yeah. like nostalgic yeah but i don't think that time is yet okay I'm, i may be wrong but in my opinion not yet uh hold off on your triangle tattoos if you've got a triangle tattoo it's cool yeah i have one <laughs> do you well I'm... yeah it's not an yeah. lj tattoo i hope it's not an lj tattoo no but... it represents your love for your dad and your sister yeah it's a family tattoo <laughs> <laughs> Should we play another clip? Yeah. That's a good time because I've got nothing else to say at the moment. Yeah. Okay. okay. I'm going to play. So this is the third clip. Is it? Yeah. If we started with one. Oh, yeah. There's one in the middle. This is the third clip. Okay. Wicked.
Okay, we're back. That was a really cool track. (laughs) (laughs) I loved that. And we're back. (laughs) What kind of music or anything, really, inspires you currently or maybe inspired you then? Yeah, what inspires you to create your own stuff? Um, Well, at the moment... um the moment it's it feels like it's very small things that influence me so like yesterday we were watching a documentary about biggie smalls notorious big mm-hmm. um what's his real name Charles? something wallace no. William christopher christopher wallace yeah yeah don't quote me but i think it's christopher, christopher. wallace christopher yeah. yeah and there was a there was an amazing clip toward the end where he's in the studio this is when he's creating demos and uh, he's he's rapping over Toto's Africa, mm-hmm. and that did it like it's a fucking gem that track. It's once I get once I get over the hype and like the irony of it and blah blah blah. It, like I really really love that song. Like yeah. who doesn't? And that hook, him rapping over it, like. Like I get butterflies. Like it hits you. Yeah. yeah, and that's what inspires me. It's those moments. At the moment, I I do feel like it's a lot of synth, kind of lo-fi, like tape, like analog-sounding synths that that have very emotional kind of, mm. very emotionally evocative. You said you've been feeling really nostalgic recently, and I have. Maybe yeah, it's that could be. Yeah, nostalgia. it's like Frank Ocean is a very very good example of yeah contemporary synth work that feels nostalgic and is and is very emotive and that's what inspires me is little moments like that but i also listen to you know i might come across you know like i like i watch youtube a lot and i you know i come across music videos and stuff come across like a core music video freak on a leash like there's a breakdown in freak freak on a leash which is so hard that it just makes me want to do that and so I take these little nuggets mm. and when I'm writing at home, I try to do that. Like I have an OP1 synthesizer, which is it's made by Teenage Engineering. It's called OP1 and it's the best synthesizer, in my opinion, ever made because you can do any anything with it. You can create an album with it and you don't need a laptop. It's expensive, but it's worth it. Like mm. it, it, if I was to recommend a piece of hardware, mm. it would be the OP1. It is expensive, like I said, but it's so worth it. It's tiny. Yeah. Like, can I... You might be able to hear it if I just turn it on. This might be a bad idea, but it might also be the best idea I've ever had. (laughs) And also, like, I have this thing where, like, I'll work on something, and then the adrenaline wears off, and then I don't don't want to work it on it anymore. So I keep working. I've got a thousand different clips, which is why I'm showing them here, because I find it very hard to finish things. And also, I don't know music theory at all. So I'm not very good at, like... I, I, I would love to be able to learn music theory if I, if I had the attention span. Because I can hear things in my head that I want to make, but I don't know how to make them. And mm. I get frustrated. Um, so I can... Yeah. So, you know, you've got a synth, you can add reverb, whatever.
Yeah. So. So that's the OP one. Um, so yeah, my 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 influences at the moment are small nuggets of things that I come across, which I just am taken back by, and I come up here and I try to I try to do things. Um, but in terms of artists, like my biggest biggest influence is Mika Levy. Mm. Um, She'd mentioned yeah. the first one. Did I, I can't remember if we mentioned it, and it was the podcast that we fucked up and we had to do again. I don't remember. Yeah. Either way, Mika Levy, Levy, however, however you decide to pronounce it, um, she's the most talented person in, in, in England, at least. <laughs> uh, and everything she does, I'm just blown away by, and I want to do, like, I want to be her. Like, she's the coolest person mm. in the universe. And I just want to, like, just drink her blood. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Not creepy, but I'm incredible. No. Yeah, I'm inspired by it. She puts out an album and it's like lo-fi guitar and it's just, fuck, fuck you. I have a guitar, you know, and I come up here and I'm like, um, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, well, we're getting there. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's like, you know, there's like Wolfgang Tillmans, I feel like is an inspiration for you, photographer. Yeah. Photography wise. Hugely, like Dido Marayama. Yeah. Like candid kind of photography. Yeah, because you got really into it and you always had a film camera, a point and shoot. Yeah, I've always got a camera. Like I've got at the moment, I've got a GR, a Ricoh GR3. Which isn't film. It's not film, it's digital um, because it has a very, very good digital uh, film setting and you can tune it so it looks like film and you can just upload your photos directly to your laptop mm. because at the moment it's hard to get film processed yeah but I, I love taking photos and yeah i mean musically there's all kinds of things radiohead are a big 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 influence yeah when i listen to radiohead i'm i'm like this is the best band ever that's ever been ever. i would 100 percent agree yeah and I really, really fell in love with Radiohead hard. Like the first, my first, actually my first interaction with them was at school. I had a friend called James Mothersad who was a big Radiohead fan. But at the time I was into, I was into like Deftones and I was into like Blink-182 and mm. I saw Radiohead as being indie and I was part of the cult that was indie is bad. <laughs> Yeah, it existed it's between like me and my friends. Is in, is... It's not indie. Uh, it's pop punk. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, I was, I, me and my friends were like, indies, indies, you know, it's lame, it's bad, it's like, it's weak. Right. You know, and so I just didn't listen to it. Um, which says, probably says a lot about me at the time. And so I was into metal because I was angry and I was into Nirvana because I was angry. And my friends and the bands that I were in were like angry and so... I kind of dismissed Radiohead. It was only it was only when In Rainbows came out, and I was listening to Radio One on the way to university when I was on the bus, and they played Reckoner, I think it was. And Great track. Yeah, and I was like, oh wow, okay. So I bought the album and I listened to it, and I really really fell in love with it. Yeah, I listened to it in bed. Um, there's there's a there's a moment on Reckoner where the mixing there's Tom York's vocal. There's a part where the mix, his vocal goes to the back of your head. And I don't know how hmm. uh, Nigel Goodrick, the producer, I don't know how he did it. Kind of starts at the front of your head hmm. and, and, it, and it releases at the back of your head and it just kind of disappears around the back of your head. It's amazing. Um, 
Yeah, so Radiohead. The thing is, Radiohead are an influence, but you can't recreate Radiohead. You can't. I can't sit behind a drum kit and play Radiohead. It doesn't. It's not. It doesn't work like that. It's weird. Like you can't. Like I listen to Reckoner or I listen to everything in its right place, and I can't come up here and work from that. Right. It just inspires me. I think as a human being. Right. It gives me hope and it gives me a lot of pleasure. It'll be like a guitar rift in a song that is inspirational, right? Like there'll be like things that you can take pieces of it. Yeah, there are sounds which you can take away from and and work on. Deftones for drums was my first mm. influence. So I learned how to play drums by copying uh, Deftones. And it was my friend Christian Scott, that, who's a drummer, who's a better drummer than I am, introduced me to the Deftones. And I used to go into his house and he'd teach me stuff. So I learned how to play um, this track called My Own Summer and the beat is beautifully simple in that it's a very very good way to learn how to play a very interesting uh, beat that's difficult physically but technically it's quite simple mm. if you know what I mean it's an offbeat so you you hit the kick drum um, before you before you before you feel like you should and once I learned that, once I learned like Abe Cunningham's kind of style of it, like the ghost notes and the offbeats and like holding back or like bringing, bringing hits forward, like what I love to do is hold off on hitting something. Mm. So I really draw it out and then, then it hits and it's like, uh, this kind of, mm. it moves the listener physically. Um, yeah. Yeah. Blink-182 as well, Travis Barker for speed and technical ability like flams and triplets and things like that but i'm influenced all the time um the one thing i noticed with a lot of alt j songs is that it there's a build up and it it'll be really slow to begin with and then it builds up and builds up and then it's like this big release yeah is that something that you feel because it usually is released with the drums right is that something that you feel like has been taken from somewhere could be it's not a deliberately conscious thing i think it's the way that the tracks develop a lot of the time mm. but live i definitely do that right. one thing that christian taught me was to develop if you're uh, during a live set you develop the showmanship or the bravado. Mm. you don't go straight in you you kind of build up to that he was incredibly wise. This is when this is when he was like 15, 16 that he was teaching me this stuff. How was this is your friend? Yeah, 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 Christian, who I met when I was a kid uh, in Harrogate. And yeah, he was a drummer who I idolized. Um, yeah, he taught me to hold back. And so it could be a bit that live. I definitely I try to do that. I don't go guns blazing at the beginning. Mm. And I try to build it up and build it up because it's it's a it's a performance. You know, it's like I, I like to think of our shows as a bit like theatre, and that mm. it does crescendo, and it does there's there's peaks and troughs, and you're and you're taking the audience on a journey. We're not the kind of band I don't think that is like, who's our number one single? Right. Get on your fucking feet. And it's like exercise. Like you need to warm up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think the tracks the tracks could reflect that, but it's not deliberate. Right. 
we don't ever i don't think structure our tracks in a way that is there's no ulterior to ulterior motive outside of what we're doing right you're not trying to manipulate it thinking about how the audience is going no. to react at some point no i mean there are tracks which you think oh fuck that's going to be great live yeah you know there's a track uh, a recent track of ours which i know is going to be um phenomenal there's actually a few yeah they're going to be phenomenal live it's a good album yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's never a case of like, let's do this because the crowd will be, love it. Yeah, because we're an album band. I think I I speak for myself, but for us, our album is our is our work because that's the way it came. That's where we came from. Mm. We were at one point we weren't even sure if we were ever going to play live. So I would not. I would hope. I hope we don't have a style because I would really. I would really not like the thought that we have to keep doing the same thing. I I just would not like that. Mm. So inevitably, you sound similar, and you, there are certain um, sort of tropes, certain tropes that we have. You know, and people can identify us. Yeah, there always there always be the uh, the YouTube video. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've never actually watched that. Really? Yeah. Like never. You don't even like you don't know what happens in it. I know that two guys who are stoned are like how to write an Alt J song. How have you not seen it? Because uh, because because I'm too insecure. <laughs> I mean, it's because also also at the time it felt like we were being mocked. But it's, it feels like because they like love. It feels like it's coming out of place. Oh, it's of a love. compliment. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I get that. I get that. But at the time, yeah. people used it to mock us. Right. Like Vice were like, you know, I can't remember what the title was of the article, but they're like how two stone guys became better than alt like right. how to write an alt j song is better than alt j and it's like okay like you're choosing not to like us based on the fact we're popular nice one right but it's like looking at a painting and think oh a five-year-old could do that and it's like a hockney painting yeah i think people you know there was we had we had we were very lucky in that we had a lot of success very quickly well very early on and there was a few people that decided that they were going to be the people that didn't like us because they wanted to be the people that were different. Pitchfork, for example, you know, they deliberately went against the grain. It's their opinion. It's subjective. Yeah. But, you know, it's my opinion. I'm in the fucking band. And this is your And it was podcast. hurtful. Yeah, yeah. There's this Pitchfork, Pitchfork article, which was really hurtful um, because it picked on us personally. I've never met this person in my life. Mm. Um, or we, did, we just made an album that's all we did um, so that whole rice cracker thing is is. I mean the rice cracker thing is they just happen to be eating rice crackers <laughs> it, it, you know and I get it now it's actually helped us in a lot it was free publicity do you think you need to watch it? I don't want to oh. I'm not I'm not I'm not man enough I don't have the backbone to, to do that yet you don't think you're above it I'm be it completely now? fine yeah but I just part of me likes the fact that I haven't seen it. Right, it's like going to Paris and not and seeing it. And also there, there is a line. There's a line between, I want there to be a line between me and 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 everyone else. You know, that, that I want, there's, a, there's, there's, there's something sacred about being in the band. So I don't want to be like completely sympathetic. I don't want to be completely on board with all of that. I, I, I should be allowed to have a different viewpoint. I was embarrassed when that thing came out. Like, and you might you might say that that's pathetic, or it might be like they were just being funny. Mm. But 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 like I said, people did kind of use it against us a little bit. Mm. And I'm very sensitive, and I'm very 
sensitive of myself but also of the band like you know like i said i'm in the band i know what we do yeah and i don't like that other people see us in a certain way and often they get it wrong and right i mean you were the butt of the joke in that situation exactly yeah exactly you know and and that's okay i mean you know there are a lot of there are people who get it far worse than i mean we just watched that britney spears documentary her whole life has been ruined yeah. by the other the people on the other side of that line that I'm talking about. Yeah. Her whole life has been ruined because people decide that she is an object of... Consumption. Yeah, they can do what they like. They can say what they like. Yeah. She's just a human being. That's all, that's all I am is a human being. That's all Joe is. That's all Gus is. That's all we are. Yeah. We're no different. And we're not special because we've had success in a certain field. We, we're... we're completely equal to everybody else so to, to, for there to be like this 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 kind of decision that it's like we're going to treat you differently because you do this because you've succeeded or because you have a uh, you know you're privileged in a certain way then we get to say what we like about you i understand that and i accept it but i don't need to involve myself in it right because it seems like when people bring up that video specifically with you, it's like an inside joke with you. Like they're laughing with you, but you might feel like they're laughing at you. Yeah, I do. I do. I do. Yeah, to be honest, when people bring it up, mm. um, it feels like it's a way, it's, an, it's antagonistic. Mm. They want to get a rise out of me. Because in a way, they are mocking us. They're exaggerating this cliche sound of ours. Yeah. They're exaggerating it. And they are mocking us. And That's that, and sarcasm, I, yeah. Yeah. And I do it. You know, I mock people. I'm sarcastic about people. But it doesn't make it any easier to accept. Like, it still hurts a little bit. It does, yeah. So when people bring it up, it's also like that's there's, there's so much more to me than that. And there's so much more to us than that. I'd rather have an actual conversation with somebody than be like, have you seen that video, that rice cracker video? Right. Because then it's like, what do you think? Like how much this has been ongoing on for years like mm. maybe ask me something interesting if you're in an interview and it's the 10th interview of the day and they ask you what what does alt j mean i'm gonna leave the fucking room because <laughs> i don't need to talk about it yeah you know i have the right to talk about whatever the fuck i like yeah. i didn't ask to be put in this position i have a job to do but i also will be completely happy just doing what i do like i don't ask you know, like I don't beg people to buy our music. I don't shove it down their throats. If I did, then I would have some responsibility. I don't owe anybody anything. And also, I feel like people respect people who are honest a lot more than phony bullshitters who are just a persona, like a celebrity pop star. Mm. Never, ever going to do that. So it is antagonistic. But I also know that it's completely harmless. And these two guys who made that did a really good job at it and it is funny and it's entertaining yeah and i think it's funny for people that are fans of yours because they feel like they're in on it because they're like oh yeah they do that and that is something that is like it's like when you know a good friend and you mock them but then yeah. someone that doesn't know them starts mocking them and you're like wait you're not allowed to mock yeah. them you also, don't know them <laughs> yeah anybody that watches the video 10 seconds later they're thinking about something else yeah. It doesn't it, mean anything. It doesn't matter. It has a weirdly long shelf life, this video, but um, yeah. <laughs> but it's also uh, not that interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, but it, it could be a lot worse. But I'm not shy about, about being honest about how I feel about it. Yeah. 
because you know I'm not going to pretend that I'm like yeah that's really cool that's really funny right because I don't feel that also, way also like there's only so many like responses you can have to it yeah I don't need people on my side mm. I don't need to convince people that I'm anything other than I am yeah I mean I think that's part of the reason that this exists is that it gives you a platform to be honest and you don't have to be that bullshitty interview guy yeah these podcasts this is where you're going to get the truth like this is where you're going to get the on like my honest opinion you know if you come to an interview and you've got 10 questions that are prepared Mm. based on what you who you think i am right and what's pc and it's then it's just but i also but i also understand that that you know certain outlets you know, I don't know. They need certain bits of information for people for people to be. You know, we watch Jimmy Kimmel quite a bit, and he has a guest on there, and there's a reason that they're on there, yeah. and he has to get to that to the point of the reason they're promoting something. Yeah. You know, and I do want people to to listen to our music. I want it to be heard, and I want to share it. And if I refuse to cooperate, that won't happen. But I also find I I, I it's impossible for me to be dishonest, and I can't, I can't pretend to do anything I can't represent anything I don't believe in so I think that's probably we might have bored everyone to death I might have bored everyone to death (laughs) I'm getting like wine sleepies (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how long we've been going on now well let's just wrap it up put a pin in it (laughs) okay alright well I know last time I said I was going to finish with the track and I didn't yeah I apologise we're learning, but, you know, we'll get there. So I'm going to finish now with another clip of something I've been working on recently. Maybe not that recently. I don't know yet. I haven't decided. But either way. Clip number four. Four. Yep. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. And I really appreciate you listening to this. I really do. For you to take the time out and to listen to this dribble is, is very, it's nice. I appreciate it. So I hope you have a great week. I hope you're well. Maybe send some questions in. Yeah, if there's anything you want to know, um, you can contact me on Twitter, which is it's at Tom Sonny, T-H-O-M-S-O-N-N-Y. Um, and I'll read it because I don't get that many mentions. Yeah, but we might not answer them, depending. Depends on the question, yeah. But there's not many things I won't answer. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Okay. All right, I love you. Bye.